Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon, and welcome to our book conversation with Bob Woodson, author of Lessons from the Least of These. Bob is a great friend and a wonderful leader from whom I've learned so much, and I'd like to invite him now to turn on his webcam and join the program. Welcome, Bob. Great to see you. Pleased to be here, and I want to thank Heritage for hosting this event. Well, it's our delight, and I'm so pleased to be able to do it. Well, you are the founder and president of the Woodson Center, which has a a four-decade track record, really amazing work. Could you describe to us, just to set the stage for our conversation about your book, what the Woodson Center does. Woodson Center represents uh, thousands of grassroots leaders throughout the country. These are grassroots leaders who are operating in some of the most challenging, toxic neighborhoods throughout the country. Uh, we go into these communities and seek out healing agents that are indigenous there. Many of the grassroots leaders we consider healing agents. Then once we find them, we apply miracle grow in the form of training and technical assistance so that their influence that they have on a limited number of people can be expanded. And then we are kind of a, a, a bridge between people with resources and knowledge from outside so we can build bridges to those inside and hopefully rebuild uh, our communities from the inside out. And out of that incredible work, uh, the heroic work really that's going on across the country and your lifetime of experience of observing it, you've produced this book, Lessons from the Least of These, 10 Principles, the Woodson Principles. Um, I've had the benefit of learning over the years from you and, and now you've put that in a book for many, many more people to learn. What is it that gives these leaders in neighborhoods across the country, their moral authority? Well, first of all, they are problem solvers. And also they have demonstrated through their walk that they are trusted by the people that they serve. They have been able to overcome great personal challenges. And as a consequence of their path towards redemption and reconstruction of their lives, they have served as a catalyst to revitalize their entire community. So they are the, uh, the equivalent of social entrepreneurs, if you want to take a secular view, uh, but they're healing agents. And usually they get ignored uh, in the process of revitalizing community. So I, I found them to be uh, an important uh, source uh, of revitalization of communities. I think one of the things that's important to understand about your book right from the outset is that it's not just principles with respect to the poor. These are principles you mean for all of us to take account of. And can you tell us a little bit more about why you wrote with that in mind? Well, because really America is in a moral and spiritual freefall, Jennifer, that is consuming people in uh, upper income communities. Um, I think it was. Palo Alto, Silicon Valley, where there are two parent households, median income of $180,000 with all of these 
and yet the suicide rate among its teens is six times the national average. And what they share in common and the principal cause of death of teens in the inner city among black communities, homicide. And, and, and even in Appalachia and areas of Fortnite, uh, leading cause of death, opiate addiction. So Americans of all incomes and races are suffering a moral and spiritual freefall and, and the answers will not come through racial grievance or, or, or through looking at life through the lens of tribalism. We must uh, move to put these differences aside so that we can concentrate on remedies that will stop and arrest this moral freefall. And so therefore, uh, I was able to take extract from some of these principles that would be useful to everybody in the process of redemption and restoration is what we ought to be concentrating our time and energy of doing. That's a wonderful message. It was fun to see the early proofs of your book and to recognize names of people that I've met through through your agency. And um, you've always emphasized that the people that are doing some of the best work in communities may have X before their role. <laughs> they, 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 they may have uh, you know, some some history. And that is part of what makes them successful. Can you explain what your point is there? Yeah, I think that the Bible says that you must go among the broken to be healed. Uh, that that what we have done now to address the problems of, of, of poverty over the past 50 years is we have parachuted solutions in from well-intentioned professionals uh, that parachute, and we've spent about $22 trillion in profit uh, to address poverty, where in the 70 cents of that money, Jennifer, goes not to the poor, but those who serve the poor. They ask which problems are, are fundable, not which ones are solvable. So we've created a commodity out of, uh, out of the poor. And unfortunately, people on the, uh, on the left still are wedded to the notion that the poor must be rescued from themselves through professional intervention. And then people on the right uh, conclude, well, since what we have spent hasn't worked, then we should just cut those programs and reduce them. And I call it low budget liberalism. <laughs> and so what we believe at the Woodson Center, the question is, isn't how much we spend from government or how less we spend but we should look for a different source of, of for solutions. And the solutions are exactly in the same zip code as where the problems are. But it is fundamental elitism that prevents us from looking for solutions among the people suffering the problem. So it's fundamental elitism coming from both the right and the left that prevents us from recognizing the rich resource that is, uh, that is uh, resident in the community suffering the problem. So to give an example of that, could you tell us about Pastor Freddie and uh, Victory Fellowship in San Antonio, Texas, the legacy that he's left there? Yes, uh, Pastor Freddie, uh, as by his own acknowledgement, he's uh, he's passed now. But when he he became a hopeless drug addict, he and his wife, Nympha, they were on the streets. And finally, he uh, was on and had just gotten out of a psychiatric hospital. And he was back on the streets and he came upon a man who invited him to come to a Christian service. And he said, how can somebody who died 2000 years ago help me when somebody with a white coat on the 
in a hospital couldn't help me. But he said he came to that chapel that day, and all of a sudden he said uh, it felt like an arm around his heart squeezing him, and he began to cry and confess his sins of addiction. And from that day on, he didn't need a 12-step program. He became redeemed. But then Freddie and his wife went back to San Antonio and opened their home to drug addicts as a witness that transformation is possible. And as a consequence, people came from all over and he expanded from that one house to a ministry that has reached thousands in 120 locations all over the United States and in other countries as well. Uh, and he is now uh, uh, followed in his ministry by his son Jubal. But they are, uh, they only accept in recovery people who've been sleeping on the bridges, people, the worst of the worst, and yet that they have brought about some miraculous transformations of people. And I was blessed to, to be a part of helping him to accomplish this and learn so much from Pastor Freddie. The range of activities of uh, those helping across the country is really remarkable from uh, the kinds of uh, help to addicts that you've just discussed to youth outreach to um, helping overcome poverty. Uh, I think of uh, the Running Rebels project in Milwaukee and Victor and Don Barnett there who are, are working with youth. Can you tell us a little bit more about the kinds of work that, that they're doing at Running Rebels and and the violence-free zones that you've worked on over the years. Again, Don and Victor are a perfect example of grassroots leaders. Victor started on a little rundown basketball court uh, using basketball to reach young people. It's very interesting. He would have 100 young people in the course of a day uh, coming to him. But when the Boys and Girls Club built a brand-new facility two blocks away with a swimming pool and whatnot, they had to hire outreach workers to recruit kids to come. But thanks to the Bradley Foundation and others who came as, uh, as supporters early on, Victor has taken that, he and his wife, that commitment to young people. And now they have reached thousands in the city of Milwaukee. They have a, uh, a new facility, but over the years they have committed themselves, uh, to serving. There's one situation that will always stay with me when I was talking to Don, his wife, about a young man who was doing life in prison. And, she, and he, the, the uh, psychologist said he was on suicide watch. And the only thing that calmed him down was a telephone call from Don. And she, he said to her, I know I've disappointed you, but please don't give up on me. And I was moved to tears, but here as a man doing life, and yet uh, Don Barnett still stays committed to being a force in his life. That's the level of commitment that grassroots leaders like Don Barnett and Victor have. That's the kind of impact they had. You can't do that because you've got a master's degree. That comes out of godly commitment to people that these young people are inspired to even not give up hope while they're doing life in prison. But that's the kind of inspiration that grassroots leaders, the kind of impact they have on those they serve. Yeah, it's the lifetime commitment, as you've as you've emphasized. One of the reasons I'm so glad to see this book come out is that 
you've given us ways of capturing the idea, coinages, you've coined terms to help us capture uh, the, the essence of what's going on in these situations. And one of those is reminding us that these leaders who are making a difference in the lives, like you've just talked about, are from the same cultural zip code as those they serve. And that that is so much more important than a particular certification that was gotten from some organization or institution of higher education somewhere else. Can you elaborate on that? What, what you mean by the cultural, same cultural zip code? I'll give an example of Leon Watkins, who's deceased, uh, who first, one of my oldest friends, uh, who died two years ago. Leon was living in 62nd and Pico in South Central. It was dominated by a gang called the East Side Crips. There were 18 to 20 young men who just terrorized the community. And Leon and his wife literally had to go into the bathroom of their house when they were shooting. Well, he had enough. And so he posted warning signs all over the community, said he wants to meet with the leader. And he put a phone number of a telephone booth to play games for a, a week. Finally, he agreed to meet. He's, so they come in two cars with guns, colors flying. And here's Leon walking up the street with his hands out. And when they, the leader asked him, what do you want? He said, I want to talk to you about your life. They sat on a trash can for two hours. The next day, Leon had him in Bible study. And within three days, he had all 20 members in Bible study. And, and as a consequence, I helped them to set up the family helpline and not, not for profit. And these young men who were terrorizing the community became ambassadors of peace and eventually protecting the community all because and that we helped Leon to set up a not for profit. But that just shows you how courageous he was. The very fact that he had the power of one individual who had the courage and the trust and confidence of these young men. To this day, Leon has gone to meet with the Lord, but Quake is still around today, and he's a grandfather. It's pretty remarkable to see the replication that comes from those who whose lives have been redeemed, and then they want to help the next generation of those fighting the same uh, obstacles, having the same hurdles in their lives and help them to avoid making perhaps similar mistakes, get them on a path to success. And the the work you did with Benning, the, the gang uh, violence in Benning Terrace is an example of that. I remember 20 years after your work on that, I had the privilege of being with you when you received the Wilberforce Award in 2018 from the Colson Center. And you had these young men, former gang members up there on stage with you I think some of their kids were even there and and just the replication of uh, the good that came of your work 20 years earlier. Can you can you just tell a little bit about that? Yeah, even from my own experience, my dad died when I was nine, leaving me my mother with a fifth grade education and five children to raise. So I appreciated the importance of having a social group that acts as a substitute family. So I I understand why kids join gang. What bothers us as most is this criminal behavior, not the organization. And so I took that kind of understanding, but <clears throat> Washington in this, uh, in this area in Benning Terrace in Washington, D.C. had 20, 53 murders in a five square block area in two years because of these warring factions, the Avenue and the Circle. And I have been working with a group of 
of uh, grassroots leaders, ex-offenders called the Alliance of Concerned Men about how to conduct gang intervention. And so I said that you have the trust of the officials and the kids and the parents, but there's no way to measure your impact because you're all, all over the place. And I said, why don't you select one area? And a 12-year-old boy was killed, Daryl Hall. And as a result of this uh, Benning Terrace, I said, the Lord has made a choice for you. Go back. They brought 16 of these kids to my office downtown because it was sanctuary, safe place. They came in separate bands. They had bulletproof vests on. The police didn't even know who the leaders were. To make a long story short, we asked them. They said, no one has ever asked us to be peaceful. And as a consequence, uh, the housing authority director was there. And, and these boys shook hands. And they went from terrorizing the community to rebuilding it. The housing authority hired them as uh, to remove graffiti, paint, plant the grass. And as a consequence of this investment, we said to them, this is not charity. You have to give something back for what was given to you. What are you passionate about? And they said, we want to be coaches. So for the last 20 years, some of them have been acting as surrogate fathers. And so we had, we've gone from 53 murders down to zero murders, gang deaths in 12 years. And so these young men, we said to them, if you commit yourself to life, we'll commit the rest of our lives to you. One of them lived with my wife and me for about six months. And so we were able to learn from principles of that Benning Terrace experience to export it to Dallas, to Baltimore, to Milwaukee. So we're always in a situation where we're trying to learn from these interventions, but the real teachers uh, are these young men, and they're very close to me today, uh, as they are to others uh, around the country. Well, it's a wonderful legacy. I want to return to uh, some of the the ways of con conceptualizing this that you've given us, the terms that that help us capture what's going on. And you've talked in your you talk in your book about the importance of being a witness and distinguish that from being an advocate. What's the importance of being a witness? Well, there, there, are two, there are two types of witnesses. If somebody who has actually been on the, uh, they were a drug addict or they were a prostitute, and as a consequence, they have been redeemed from that. And therefore, their life is a given testimony that redemption is possible. See, a lot of young people don't believe if I started life a certain way with certain obstacles, that I can't overcome those obstacles. When you meet someone, that you know who walk the same path as you do and they have recovered from it, it serves more as a motivator for you to do the same thing. And, and uh, Jennifer, I asked uh, Carl Hartford, one of my other big leaders in Hartford, Connecticut one time, I said, Carl, you have negotiated between the ghetto brothers and others and the gang truce, put your life on the line. What is it that you get from it. You talk a lot about what you give to the kids, but what do they do for you? And his answer just blew me away. He said, well, Bob, I was uh, out with Steve Holton. You know, he's the was the leader of the Magnificent 20s, 16-year-old. I just brought him out from that gangs. And I was called to the hospital when my brother was severely beaten by these men. 
And I went to visit him and he was paralyzed from the neck down. And he said, Brother Carl, these are the guys who did this to me and I know you will get them, you'll pay them back. And uh, Carl was enraged and he said he was walking out of the hospital and Steve Holton said to him, Brother Carl, if what you taught us doesn't mean anything, I'll get my gun and join you. But if it does have any meaning, you'll call the police. So Carl said he was stopped in his tracks, confronted by the same wisdom that he imparted to this young man. And he said he could have, he saved my life that day and all of what I've worked my life to accomplish. And there are just a lot of stories of, of people giving of themselves to these young people, only to have those young people turn around and give that back to them. So that, Jennifer, uh, gives you uh, a, a window into the rich moral and spiritual uh, legacy that abides in these communities. And I could go on all day and tell you stories like this, how the, the Leon Watkins, the Freddie Garcias, and the Carl Hardricks put their lives on the line every day. They're in neighborhoods where they could be shot at any time, but yet they are, they are selfless in the giving of, and that's what you look for when you're looking for healing aids. You look for people uh, who, when you wanna know who's authentic. Well, authentic people, healing agents, will introduce you to people who they've healed, help heal, and they will leave the room. <laughs> to let you talk with them. And, it's, and so it, it's just been so uh, exciting. Um, and I've known Carl for 40 years, but each time that I meet him today, I learn something new. We call him the mayor of the ghetto of Hartford. Well, it is, another of your principles is inspiration. And these, uh, these are certainly individuals who do inspire us and inspire others after them. Uh, I'd be interested to hear about um, the, the, the nature, your assessment of the nature of poverty. You've commented that not all poverty is alike. Can you tell us how you think about that? Yes, Jeff, that's a good question because, you know, you got people on the right and left are fighting about what's a good poverty program, what's a bad one. And many of them are talking past one another. Uh, because not everybody is poor for the same reason. I, I say there are four categories of poor people. There are those who are poor because they're just broke. <laughs> they don't have any money. There's been a death of a breadwinner or a factory has moved out of town, but their character is intact. They use the welfare system and temporary aid the way it was intended as an ambulance service, not a transportation system. And then you got category P, uh, uh, two rather, are people who have uh, who have character is intact, but they but they look at the perverse incentives for remaining poor. If I work and get a raise, I can lose health benefits, and so they are trapped. If you take away the perverse incentives, they'll be fine. Category three are people who are physically or mentally um, uh, in need. We have to find a way to care for them. But the but category four is the one that concerns most of us. And that is people who are poor because of the chances that they take and the choices that they make. Theirs is a cultural failing, a moral failing. And to give the same 
a level of aid and support to category four, you injure them with the helping can. Because what they need in order for opportunity to, to be effective, they need redemption and restoration. And so the, the, the kind of people served by the Woodson Foundation, Woodson Center, we, we specialize in category four. Our grassroots people run to people, others run from. And so our grassroots leaders understand that if a young man or young woman wants to work and be a responsible parent, it means that they have to uh, uh, become restored and re they, they must change their attitude. They must change their values and they must alter their behavior to earn the right for opportunity. It should not be given because of their condition. And so if you love someone, you have the highest expectations of them. And that's what our grassroots do. Self-sufficiency independence starts with the recognition that, that, the, uh, that, that life, that the victimizer may have knocked you down, i.e. racism, my, an abusive parent or a troubled neighborhood, what the victim has to get up. 10% 10, 10 of, of, of our problems are external. 90% is our attitude about the 10%. Well, you commented about the moral and spiritual richness that these community leaders bring to the challenges of poverty and other social uh, problems that, that communities are facing. And Clearly, one of the things that we can see hampering our efforts to fight poverty in this country is that our policy, uh, our policy work tends to define poverty as a merely material problem, and it reduces poverty to the material. Your leaders, your work has shown us a great deal about the moral, spiritual, personal aspects of the challenges surrounding poverty. And so it's been a great contribution in that regard. We're getting great questions from our audience, and I'd like to invite our listeners to uh, submit questions, and we'll be happy to ask them. One that I'd like to ask you from our audience members is, what? why are community groups not getting the kinds of community leaders that you're lifting up? Why don't they get more attention and trust from policymakers at the local state level? Um, and, and what barriers might need to be removed from a policy direction to let their work go further? Well, several barriers. First of all, this current race, the race grievance industry and those who are trying to tear apart civic institutions in America are the biggest barrier that we're facing today. Uh, white guilt is the new black power to some people. And so what we're trying to do uh, the Woodson Center is give voice to particularly black low-income people who are hostile to, uh, whose actions rather, uh, embrace the principles of the founders of America. And, and, but the people on the left, the hard left, who are trying to uh, use racial uh, division as a bludgeon to tear apart this country. They are the ones who are preventing the kind of solutions that I'm talking about. That's why if you look at the polls, for instance, 60 to 70% of black Americans, particularly low income blacks, are against those who advocate for defunding the police. 60%, according to Pew, do not believe that racial discrimination is the biggest barrier to holding them back. But you would never know that by listening to the press. 
because the press does not give an, an opportunity for all blacks, particularly people in these neighborhoods suffering the problem, an opportunity to speak for themselves. And so you have, uh, it's really the fundamental elitism again, of uh, people on, on the left who are, are, uh, who are dominating down this dialogue and, is, and, 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 and taking us into a, a dark place. Have you seen reforms at the federal level that have helped? I think prison, some forms of prison reform has helped. I know in a very narrow way, when residents of public housing, for instance, that we work with, as you know, Jennifer, uh, we were specifically, if, if those residents of public housing work to reduce the, the crime in their community, if they increase their income and lowered their costs because they are making decisions, the government used to recapture that money. So we had seven amendments to the Housing Act changed that will accommodate reforms that are taking place. So I think we really need to be very particular about uh, associating for the decredentializing service providers is something that the federal and all governments can do. Right now, most programs to aid the poor, uh, whether it's a private foundation or a public uh, source of money, they require people with college degrees to qualify for who gets support to help the poor. And, 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 and so that's, that, that's a, a big barrier that we hope government will change. Certification is not synonymous with qualification. In other words, Jennifer, some of the, the principles that operate in our market economy, where only 3% of the people in the market are entrepreneurs, but they generate 70% of the jobs but they tend to be C students. C students come back to colleges. I mean, A students teach, C students endow. And so nobody asks whether Steve Jobs has a degree, but in our market, in our social economy, you can waste millions if it's, if it's uh, uh, authored by well-intentioned people, as long as they're credentialed. So we think that has to change. Policy has tended to look at the inputs like credentialing, like funding levels and so on, uh, more than the concrete life outcomes. And your metrics certainly look at the life outcomes. Um, can you uh, comment on the, the last point in your book, uh, which emphasizes grace over anger? Why is that important as we're thinking about this subject? You know, Jennifer, there in the uh, movie, Hidden figures. You remember that about the the three black women in the space program, Kathleen Johnson, who was responsible for Apollo 13 growing up. There is a scene in there where they're trying to figure out how to orbit, get the, the missile to orbit. And the woman played Kathleen, she said, wait a minute, maybe we need to look in the past for an answer to that problem. So they went back into a, a library a bookshelf and took a book on. Euclidean geometry, thousands of years, and they found the answers to the contemporary problem in something that was a thousand years old. Well, we do the same thing uh, today by looking back into the history of Black America for examples of grace. And I, uh, in the book, I talk about uh, um, uh, Robert Smalls. He was born in 19, uh, 18. 39 in Sumter, South Carolina. 
he was a slave. He stole, he, he commandeered a supply ship uh, Friday night and put on the hat and coat of his master and maneuvered past five garrisons and turned the ship over to the Union Navy. And he was celebrated uh, and all over. And it caused Lincoln to uh, use blacks in the Civil War. After the war was over, he became a successful businessman and actually went to Congress, but he purchased a plantation on which he was a slave and took in the family, the wife and, and children of the slave master. And because she was delusional, she didn't realize that the, the war was over, but he still permitted her to stay in her bedroom. Robert Small, a man who was actually purchased a plantation on which he was a slave and took in the family, there's an example of radical grace in action. Just like Dr. King practiced radical grace when his home was destroyed and his wife and children barely made it out. And he was standing around with hundreds of angry black men who were armed. Even in the face of this outrage, Dr. King counseled peace. And there are other stories of radical grace that if a man who was an ex-slave could take in the family of the slave master. And Dr. King could counsel peace in the presence of his family almost being destroyed. How can some wealthy scholar at Harvard be angrier than Dr. King or Robert Small? Well, that kind of testimony certainly encourages all of us to a spirit of humility as we approach this. And of course, that's one of the points we raised at the beginning of this conversation that you are bringing out these principles to help all of us reflect on uh, our, ourselves and the needs we have uh, from others uh, that go beyond ourselves for to meet our material needs, our spiritual needs, our relational needs. As we are in this season of the year where people are thinking about giving in the holiday season and wondering how they can come alongside these leaders at the community level with their time, their resources, their expertise, what would you counsel them to be looking for, us to be looking for in terms of the organizations to be able to find and help and lift up the good work of the kinds of organizations that you found across the country? First of all, when you go into a community, um, there may be abandoned houses, broken sidewalks. Don't assume that nothing is there until you arrive. That, that the sickest part of the body draws the strongest antibodies. You should go in with the expectation that there are problem solvers already there embedded in it. And what you must do is come beside them. One quick example of my friend Rick Wiederholt in Milwaukee, Foundation retired from the Allen Bradley Corporation's treasurer, the leader of the Betty Brim Foundation. We, he worked closely with me, a good pharaoh, worked closely with us when uh, uh, Andre Robinson from the uh, um, Latino Community Center got this gang member to lead the gang. Um, he was uh, attacked by his gang, his same gang, the rival gang and they shot his pregnant girlfriend to death. And so he agreed to testify against the gang, but they threatened his family. Rick Wiederhold provided the money to us, so we moved the woman and her children out into a safe location in another city because the city didn't have a witness protection program. 
He also helped me to raise money immediately to care for them, but also arranged for her to come back, stay at a condominium downtown Milwaukee and testify. Those gang members went to prison. But as a result of Rick stepping up with me, the city then developed its own witness protection program. Rick did this on two other occasions. So there's an example. Now, we don't expect people to step up to be that active. But I merely say that people with money, with influence, they just have to make themselves available and see what needs to be done and follow the direction of the neighborhood leaders and then uh, come beside them. But don't leave all of your skills that you've had. Grassroots leaders are like entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs tend to be poor bookkeepers. So they need not only money, but they also they need managerial expertise and training. Pharaohs can help with that. In other words, Jennifer, it's important if, when you're coming in to help to be on tap without being on top. Now, you've used the term pharaoh. Can you tell us about the distinction between a Joseph and a pharaoh in your work? This is another way you've helped us to grasp what's going on. Well, my whole organization is just built on this paradigm, uh, my book, The Triumphs of Joseph, because as you know, if you know the story of, of, of Joseph born with to 12 brothers and he had a cloak of many colors and uh, Joseph was very arrogant too. He said, I saw you, you and my father bowing down to me. And so they faked his death, sold him into slavery. He went uh, to the Ishmaelites who were slave traders in, in Egypt he then found himself a slave in the house of Potiphar, and, but he became the best servant. And Potiphar's wife tried to get him to have sex with him, but he refused because he said it would be a, uh, he had lateral integrity and horizontal integrity. He said it would be a sin against his God and a violation of the trust. Anyway, she accused him of attempted rape. He was in prison. He became the best prisoner. He was there, languished there for 13 years. And when Pharaoh had this dream that none of his experts could, could answer, they brought uh, Joseph before him. And Joseph told him there'll be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. Save up 20%. It's the first flat tax. <laughs> and to appoint an overseer. And so Pharaoh elevated Joseph. Can you imagine going, reaching across racial ethnic to empower a 31-year-old uneducated Hebrew shepherd and place him in trouble. And then the Bible says for 500 years, Egypt prospered until there rose a, a pharaoh that knew not Joseph. I use that because I, I look for the Josephs in the inner city. There are two types, those that were like Joseph in Genesis. He was blameless, but he never succumbed to bitterness. He didn't demand reparations from Egypt. He, he also not only forgave his brothers, but he put a plan in place that saved the brothers who betrayed him and the Egyptians who enslaved him. Here's an example of radical grace in action. That he didn't, he could have become bitter and do what people are doing there. We need reparate. No, we need restoration coming from whatever source God delivers it. And so we use that today. And, and to Joseph's that were fallen, that were prostitutes or drug addicts, but who God's grace, they became redeemed. And, and so we think those are the two types of Joseph's that we look for 
And I think America is going to be saved when we can recruit enough of the powerful pharaohs who perhaps will take a fraction of the money they're investing in national uh, uh, camp, political campaigns and instead invested in neighborhood restoration. Because they will find if you plant charitably, you can harvest politically, but you don't plant and harvest in the same year. So we really need investments in, in, in uh, the Josephs in these communities so that these communities can be restored. And then politicians, once they see the process of restoration, they can try to align their policies and their politics to the solutions coming from the, the neighborhood Josephs and Pharaohs. So that's the kind of realignment that we at the Woodson Center in 1776 Unites is trying to generate. We want remedies to come from the bottom up and then let, let uh, polit politics line up and, and policies to match the remedies that are coming from the community. That's our strategy. Well, Bob, thank you so much for this book that teaches us how to learn from the least of these, lessons from the least of these. Uh, we've attached to the program here the way to get that book uh, released this week. And, Bob, I know that our audience joins me in thanking you for not only this conversation, but for your life's work in helping to raise up those who are making a difference in restoring lives and communities across America. It's a wonderful testimony, and you yourself have been a witness to their good work. We're thankful for you and for the Woodson Center. So thank you for being with me today. And thank you, and thanks, Heritage.